One of the most enjoyable experiences in Savannah is spending time at the Wormslow State Historic Site on Isle of Hope. The property's significance dates back almost to the city's founding. In fact, the man who established Wormslow in 1739, Noble Jones, was among Georgia's first settlers, along with General James Oglethorpe. Nine generations of Noble Jones' descendants have called Wormslow home since, including our latest Difference Maker, Craig Barrow III. The Difference Maker podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. are all around us, in government, in business, in nonprofits, on our schools and sports fields. The Difference Makers podcast takes a deep look at what makes these people difference makers and how they are improving our community. Today's guest is Craig Barrow III, who over the last half century has helped turn his family estate, the Wormslow Plantation, into a public treasure. And as the state readies to make significant improvements to the site with construction of a new parking area and visitor center that should relieve congestion on the site itself, Barrow was kind enough to sit down for an interview. Joined on today's episode of Difference Makers by Craig Barrow III, who is the uh, caretaker, might be the, the, the proper term, steward. the steward of one of the most appreciated, one of the most beautiful, one of the most picturesque spots in our city, which is uh, Wormslow Plantation, Wormslow Historic Site. And uh, Craig lives lives in the family house on the site. Um, the site is is uh, largely belongs to the state, but uh, Craig and his family still maintain a house and, and some acreage of their own. And uh, we're gonna really get into some of the things that are going on out there right now in terms of some improvements and some other things. But before we get into that, as we always do, we like to talk a little bit about biography and. For you, your family, that biography goes back to the very start of Savannah and the state of Georgia. Can you kind of share a little bit of the family history of, of, uh, of I guess, starting with Noble Jones? Well, Noble Jones came over with Oglethorpe, and his, he was a surveyor, and he was a doctor, but he was also in charge of putting a fortified house on the south end of Wormslow. And the reason they did that was because the this colony was founded to protect Charleston mainly yeah. from the Indians and the Spanish. The Spanish in Florida, right? And yeah. the only two ways to come into Savannah was to go outside and come up the Savannah River. If you came up the Savannah River, you were sitting duck because there was this high bluff. Mm-hmm. So the only other way to come in was through the Inland Waterway, and that went right by Wormslow. And so it was a fortified house. There were troops there. There was a, um, his boat is there. And it was there for two generations. And coincidentally, we have a group from Miami coming up with a ground penetrating drone. Uh-huh. And we, they're supposed to come any day. Uh-huh. And we're going to fly and find the boat. Oh, is that right? We think it's out in the marsh. And we think it's the first Navy vessel in the United States. Yeah. So that's going to be exciting. Right. But then uh, Noble Jones left it to his son, Noble Wimbley Jones, and then it was passed on down. And I happened to be the ninth generation 
but coincidentally, my wife and I moved up there in 1986, and we've lived there longer than any other family member. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And Noble Jones lived downtown. Right. And then George Jones lived on Poplar mm-hmm. Plantation, and that was from Waters Avenue to East Broad, Columbus Drive to Duran. And then it was getting too popular and populated, and mm-hmm. so he moved out to Wormsville. Right. Did you spend much time there growing up as a child? Yes, we did. Um, we would go out every Sunday and have a formal dinner with my grandmother. And then probably around 1950, there was one remaining slave cabin, and we renovated that, and we would go out there and stay out there on weekends. And, um, and they'd go up and have a Sunday dinner. Right. Back then, Skidaway Road was dirt. Right. And you would come at Bull Street and then go down Montgomery Crossroads mm-hmm. to get to work. So Duran Avenue was dirt. Mm-hmm. So as a boy going out there for Sunday supper, I'm sure you spent some time exploring some of the, the nature, some, some crabbing, some shrimping, some fishing. Some... Had a boat, a little five-horse mercury, and uh, I went all over the place. That was before... The Diamond Causeway, so you could go mm-hmm. all the way around Long Island and over to Pigeon Island. Right. And um, I'd ride my bicycle. I lived on 37th Street, so I'd ride my bicycle out there. Right. And then we'd always go back through Isle of Hope and go to Bobby's to see the Terrapins. Okay. Okay. Any uh, brothers and sisters? Was I have an older sister, Frida. Uh-huh. And... Uh, She's about 12 months older than I am. And then I have a younger sister, unfortunately, who passed away. Okay. But Frida and then Laura. Right. And uh, I imagine that you all did a lot of things together. Oh, with, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We were very close, very close family. Right. What were some of the the, the favorite things? You mentioned boating and, and going around. Were there other things out there that really you kind of grew attached to? Not then, because grandmother was very... F- we lo- I love my grandmother. She's a wonderful person, very interesting. But she was very formal, right? And so the house was off limits. I mean, right. we didn't. I never went upstairs until right. she died. I was up there when she died. And then the library, which is adjacent to the house, we were never allowed in there. Right. So until she passed away and mother and daddy moved up there. Right. I didn't really get to see too much. Yeah, the outdoors part was right. was your part. And, and what were some of the what were some of the favorite spots? I mean, everybody talks about the Avenue of the Oaks. Uh, was you that? Didn't, I didn't really. Rec- I think my favorite part back then was the cabin. <laughs> and one of the things I loved doing was walking out in the marsh and finding old bottles. So I have a great collection of old bottles that I found out there. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. You still find things out there that have been discarded over the years. Right. right. I'd go to the old trash piles and dig around and find bottles. Right. I imagine you probably still have some of that mud stuck under. Oh, yeah. Toenails and stuff, too, right. right? Walking out in that marsh. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So bring us up to the move from the plantation being a family property to it becoming a state. Uh, at least part of it becoming part of the state. What can you kind of walk us through what happened back there in the seventies? Well, my grandmother, when she got acquired Wormsaw in 1938, was dedicated to make sure that it would be preserved forever. 
And so in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, private family foundations became the, the deal. And so they put the bulk of Wormslow in the Wormslow Foundation, which is a family foundation, assuming that it would be free of property taxes. Mm-hmm. And Chatham County said no, it wasn't open to the public, and therefore it couldn't be tax-free. Mm-hmm. So we fought it, and we took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and we lost on a one-vote decision, which was a blessing that we lost while that was happening, one of the great, great conservationists, Jane Yawn, who lived in Atlanta, was very close to then Governor Jimmy Carter, was begging him to establish the Georgia Heritage Trust Program. And she said it, we needed a really, really powerful gift to make this happen. And so the Supreme Court ruled, and we were liable for the back taxes, which with more money than the foundation had. Mm-hmm. And so while Jimmy Carter was getting the Georgia Harris Trust Program set up, we deeded the bulk of the property of the Nature Conservancy, and they held it until they got the um, Harris Trust Program started. And coincidentally, Pierre Howard was lieutenant governor, and he and I were fraternity brothers, and that helped move it along uh, (laughs) funny how those ties work sometimes huh yeah and so it's been a what 46 year relationship and it's been a great great relationship we we all work together and uh the dnr has been fabulous right i want to talk a little bit about it becoming the historic site and opening up the public but before we do that at this point you're in your late 20s so you're you're off on your professional right. career, um, investment in, yes. investment banking. Investment. Right. How did you kind of get going that direction in your life? Was that well, a family that was very, thing? pretty simple. Um, my father was working at the firm I went to work for. Okay. And one summer, I guess it was my junior year of college. I had these wild dreams of going off and doing some stupid things. So I heard young <laughs> boys do and. My father said, why don't you go work down at the office this summer? Mm. And I said, Daddy, I could never work for you. This is just no way. <laughs> and he said, well, that might be true. But if you don't try it, you'll never know. And I don't want you to be 55 or 60 years old and regret that you didn't try it. Right. So I went down there that summer and just fell in love with the business and I'm now entering my 56th year, yeah, and I'm not about to quit. Yeah. When you went to college, you didn't study finance then? What, uh, I, when I, after I worked that summer, uh-huh. I, I was majoring in economics, Okay, but I took yeah. every finance course I could take, Right, and I doubled up my senior year. I took stock market and right. studied Graham and Dodd and all the stuff you're supposed to study. Right. And you told your dad you didn't think you'd ever work for him. But it was, I, I take it, you enjoyed working with him. Oh, for, I did. And I did. And when I was, so I started there in 1965. Mm-hmm. So he and I could communicate the whole time about the Nature Conservancy and the gift and what we were doing. And he relied on me a lot. So I'm the only person 
alive today. Well, Jimmy Carter's alive, but he wasn't in the negotiations. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I'm the only one that knows exactly what happened from 1954 till today. Right. And it's very helpful to a lot of people who don't know what happened. You can't tell me what you think happened. I can tell you what What actually did did happen. happen. Yeah. You mentioned the Supreme Court case, and and obviously – you called it a blessing, but I'm sure that at the time it was a little bit bitter. But what was it like taking a case all the way to the to the Supreme Court? We didn't go. The lawyers took the lawyers it. did it. We didn't. I, yeah, you just they just called you and said, yeah. "This is what's going." I take another case to the Supreme Court, and I was there. Right. But, and what was that? Was that experience? That, a, that was when I was suing the city of Guyton over the wastewater treatment plant that they uh-huh. were putting in, in yeah. Effingham County, uh-huh. and I won by the appellate court then I went into appeals court three judges voted three to nothing and then I went to Supreme Court and I lost eight to nothing (laughs) funny how that works sometimes huh yeah they found the right they found the right technicality I think they found the right politician (laughs) was a what what is that experience like to, to sit there in a court and watch it argued and not a whole lot of people get to do that well it's very trying because I knew what I wanted, I knew what I needed, but I didn't get to testify. Right. And so I couldn't explain. Hey, and I had to depend on the lawyer, and they have a way of getting you off track. Right. And so they were missing the whole point. Right. Yeah, they ask a lot of questions while the. While and it all got very technical. Right. And the city of Guyton will tell you if they'd have listened to me. They would have saved a heck of a lot of money because now they've got a mess up there. Right. And it's, yeah. It'd be a heck of a story. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll they really to, have a mess. We'll have to start digging in on that. But uh, one thing that happened in the 80s that I think is very important that a group of developers bought Pigeon Island. Mm-hmm. Pigeon used to be part of Wormslow, mm-hmm. and my um, grandmother's brother sold it. Well, when we gave the property to the Nature Conservancy, all the easements on the highland applied to the marsh because it was an original land grant from the King of England. Mm -hmm. So there's no way you can build a causeway, you can do any development on that marsh. Mm -hmm. Well, the marsh goes to the low watermark. Mm -hmm. Erroneously, DNR issued those people a permit to go across the Wormslow Marsh to Pigeon Island. And I stopped them. I was threatened to sue the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy found out if I did sue, I'd have won. Mm-hmm. And it could have been a nasty, nasty affair. Well, the good news is the Wormsville Foundation put up $100,000. The state put up the rest. We bought Pigeon Island, and Pigeon Island now is part of Wormsville. Right. The important thing about that is anybody driving on the Diamond Causeway going to Skidaway mm-hmm. has a beautiful vista mm-hmm. all the way out. Mm-hmm. And then recently, the Pinpoint Museum in the Oyster Factory is there. Mm-hmm. If Pigeon Island had been developed and I hadn't stopped it, right. they would see high rises. Right. Yeah, they would. And they would have lost all the scenic beauty. Developed that. Well, that now, when you go out there to the Oyster Factory, you can see where the oystermen went. Mm-hmm. and how they went and there's nothing blocking the view right. which is pretty spectacular so right. that's one thing we did right. another thing we've done is the Skidaway Road going towards Alahope School mm-hmm. 
Judge Solomon planted those palm trees there. Mm-hmm. And it all grew up and was messing up. The county, it was ugly. And the county wanted to put in a sewer system there. And they wanted to pipe it. So we made a deal with them. Uh, if they would restore Skiway Road to the way Judge Solomon designed it, we would then um, grant the right to put sewer in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's made it a very beautiful yeah. den right there. Right. And so we've done things like that mm-hmm. to share the site, to beautify the site, and to help the site. Mm-hmm. And then the recent gift to the university and the research we're doing is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. We've restored the longleaf pine forest. We brought in gopher tortoises. We have a gopher tortoise. If somebody has a gopher tortoise and they want to dig a, build a plant or something like that, they'll bring the gopher tortoises out to them. So mm-hmm. we now have six. Mm-hmm. And they were walking around and just really right. cool. Right. And then the Monarch Butterfly Project we did, you got national recognition. Right. Let's go back to when it, it first, uh, Nature Conservancy and then, and then DNR, and it becomes a historic site, getting the programs going, digging all of that history back out. How intimately involved were, were you with that, and how much did, did you learn along the way about the site that maybe you didn't even Oh, I've realize? learned tons. Yeah. I mean, it's, DNR will... They don't have to, but they're very gracious. They don't ever do anything of significance without consulting me. Mm-hmm. And if they have a new director, they talk to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've been wonderful about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing is when, when we moved out to Wormslaw, mm-hmm. you know, it was like moving in another house. We had two kids that, that didn't have hardly any money. Yeah. And we were too busy running the family and trying to settle into something. Then it hit us. Right. It really hit us. And then you realize that you've got a heck of a responsibility. It's not like going and buying your own piece of property. This is something that's been entrusted to me. Mm-hmm. And um, the wonderful, wonderful man, Frank Jenkins, who's a descendant of a slave, came to me the morning my father died mm. and I was back at the cemetery it was dawn and all of a sudden I felt this massive hand on my shoulder and I looked up and it was Frank Jenkins and he said you are now the master well I got this award from the um, Library of American Landscape Architects and they wrote an article about me and I told that story about being the master Oh, you can't use that word. You cannot use that word. So the proper word is steward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were eight other masters of Wormslow. I'm the ninth. Mm-hmm. And if Frank Jenkins wants to call me master, that's fine with me. Right, right. The, the fascinating thing, one of the fascinating things to me about Wormslow is the fact that it traces the entire history of, of Savannah. You know, it, Neville Jones came over with Oglethorpe. He established that out there, as you said, as fortification. And then uh, the colonial era, if those of us that have been to Colonial Fair and Muster, we know that there's a lot of that history out there. And then it winds forward into the 1800s, and it becomes more of a uh, agricultural 
plantation, I think it was originally for silkworms, right? And then it eventually takes on cotton. Right. And with cotton, you get slavery right. in, in, the, in the mid-1800s. And then Civil War, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there were some Civil War fortifications out there that played a role in that war, too. And I saved those um, fortifications because when they built the Diamond Causeway, mm-hmm. they were going to go down the avenue at Wormsaw mm-hmm. and build a causeway down the avenue. And the engineers came out there, the county was all for it, and we stopped them and said, we'll give you the right-of-way in the marsh if you put it out in the marsh. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not going to get that road built because we're going to hold you up in court forever. Right. So they accepted that. What they did is they were supposed to put the road 300 yards from the highland of Wormslow. They made a mistake and they put it at 300 feet. They built the Diamond Causeway. We gave them what's now called Butterbean Beach. Right. We gave yeah. them the right to build that there. That was, that was a gift. Mm. Not too long ago, the county wanted to widen the Diamond Causeway. Mm-hmm. And we said we would approve it if you would widen it to the south. Mm-hmm. Well, they said the fishing pier was more important than the Civil War batteries. Mm. And so we had a little bit of argument about that. <laughs> and they decided to abandon um, widening the, the widening. Causeway. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's what you deal with. I mean, I know the county's got to grow. Right. But we've given everything we know how to give right. to the citizens of the state. Right. But all the encroachment that's ever happened at Wormslow mm-hmm. has been by the government. Mm-hmm. Because... Mm-hmm. They're trying to develop. It just happens. Right. We interrupt this Difference Maker interview to tell you about the Savannah Economic Development Authority, our presenting sponsor. You may have seen where Savannah was recently named the top locale in the U.S. for economic development. That's due in part to the Georgia ports in our community's many aesthetic advantages. Great weather, beautiful scenery, friendly people. But the accolades also have much to do with the work of the good folks at CETA, who act as the ultimate connector for businesses looking to relocate, as well as existing area businesses looking to grow and expand. From finding the ideal site, to filling workforce needs, to accessing available incentives and beyond, CETA mobilizes proven connections for ultimate gain, and is a true difference maker in the Savannah community. Learn more at CETA.org. That's S-E-D-A dot org. Now, back to the interview with Craig Barrow III. We were mentioning the history, and, of course, part of that history is is some, some ugly history with slavery, which is top of mind around here these days. And and I know that you talked about you had, uh, after the Civil War, had a lot of freed slaves that, that stayed and worked for pay on the on the site. And you discovered some things as you started doing some archaeological, archaeological digs. What, what, what was that? On, an, on a site, if you're going to build anything or do anything on a historic site, you've got to have an archaeological survey, pretty substantial one. And so we hired a group out of Charleston, and they've done tons of work. And we did a dig on the old slave cabins where the chim- we found the chimneys. Mm-hmm. We found eggshells in the fireplaces and various things that were just... Well, then we were going to build this new center for research and education across from the slave cabins. And we started 
doing the survey there, and we found the foundation of a house. Well, if you think about it, the slave cabins held two families, <clears throat> one on one side, one on the other. <coughs> so you know when they became freed, were earning some money, they went up to the big house and said, would you mind if I built a house across the road mm -hmm. for my own family? But when we started digging, we found these foundations. Then we found all kind of jewelry and uh, ammunition and things that slaves could buy with money. Mm -hmm. And this site will be preserved forever. And so we just hit the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. but there's a lot more work we can do on that site. Right. Right. It's just a matter of when we can do it. But yeah. it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, and that's something that, that is kind of gained a lot of traction in this town, right, is being able to tell the more comprehensive history, not just the, for well, lack of a better word, the white history, the whole history. Yeah, but then the important thing, too, is what were the slaves eating mm -hmm. versus what, like if you go to the outhouses where they were and you can find it, you find out what the slaves were eating versus what the freed slaves were eating. Mm -hmm. And I've been told, and I, it's in print, it's in a book called Drums and Shadows, not one slave left Wormslow after the Civil War. I mean, that's real factual. The other thing that's important about the site is at the University of Georgia, there are 400 banker boxes, all indexed with the history of Savannah, Wormslow, you name it. So a student had a good example was how we found out there was upland rice growing at Wormslow and how we found out where the rice fields were. There was a student that was looking up something else and he saw where Wormslow sold rice and it was in the 400 binder boxes. And he mm -hmm. said, called up the president of our foundation and said, the rice was grown on Wormslow. Mm -hmm. We tried and tried to think about how to do it. Well, we got the engineering school down there and with drones, they could get the layout and they went and figured out exactly where the upland rice was grown because of the drainage ditches. Right, because it had to have the yeah. And irrigation. Then we went in and dug and found the remnants. So we now have put in an upland rice field, and we're growing upland rice again. Hmm. And the students can come see that and see how it's done. You mentioned earlier the, the University of Georgia Center for Research and Education. That was something that, that you helped get going out there what was the what was the idea behind that and, and what does the program entail this is, we this is a long story are you ready for it i'm ready for it okay <laughs> a friend of mine dale kreitz who you know yes um had a um a guidance counselor or a life coach and i thought that's fascinating i'm gonna i'd like to meet her because I need, I've got so much on my plate, I need to get organized. Right. So I met this woman, and she gave me a psychological test and said, you blew it off the charts. You'll never accomplish everything you're trying to do. <laughs> and I was telling it to my wife. My wife wanted to do it. So we both went and did this. And then we went and did it together. And she made you write down your priorities. Mm -hmm. My priority was the preservation of world swell. Mm -hmm. I wanted to leave it where I knew it would be preserved. 
wife said the same thing. And so she said, all right, what are you going to do and how are you going to get all this done? And we hired this consultant out of Atlanta, out of um, Washington. And it's very expensive and it wasn't getting anywhere. And we got the University of Georgia down, we got DNR down, and we had this very contentious meeting because University of Georgia people wanted to name it something and this other guy wanted to do something and it just everybody was upset. Well, the Sarah Ross, who I knew and valued, she was head of all of education for NOAA. Well, for uh, National Oceanic, okay. And I asked her to come to the meeting to be a silent partner, to just mm-hmm. protect me. Just She came and after everybody left and everybody was mad, she said, I was born to do this job. I was born to do it. So we hired her. Went to the University of Georgia, and I said to the then provost, get rid of your committee. She's going to do it, and she's going to have total academic license. He said, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I won't accept it. Well, a good friend of mine in Athens, Lane Stewart, heard about it, and she went over and saw Chuck Knapp. Well, Chuck was on our board of the foundation, and he was horrified. So he called Michael Adams. The president, right. And got Sarah put under him and moved out from under the provost. And they agreed to pick up her salary if we would deed the property. And we did a memorandum of understanding. And what we did with Sarah and Dan Nanonichek, we traveled all over the Northeast. We went to national parks, state parks, house museums. We went everywhere to look at how things were working. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that without a substantial endowment, house museums can't make it because right. the cost yeah. goes through the roof and you can't charge enough. Mm-hmm. We couldn't rely on the um, DNR because DNR goes through swings of yeah budget yeah budget cuts and depending on the the administration. It got pretty rough, right? So we said to save and preserve Wormslow education and research. If we can build that component, that will be a driving force. And so that's what we did. Now, on the other side of things, thanks to Harper's Bazaar and Condé's Nash and National Geographic, all recognizing that avenue is such a spectacular place. Mm -hmm. And we can get people to enjoy it. The people that have enjoyed it, they got married out there, you name it, they're going to want to preserve it. And so if Wormstone's ever threatened, which I hope it never is, but you never know, There'll be a a group of people right. that'll come out and say, uh-uh. And you're seeing that at our hope right now because there's certain people that are saying what we're doing is great, mm-hmm. but there's just a handful of people that are raising hell. Right. And let's get to that because that's what prompted me to, to, to reach out to you about coming in and doing the podcast was a, a letter to the editor that uh, talked about changes at Wormslow that are – meant to preserve the avenue of the oaks it basically involves a visitor center and a parking lot that's going to be built on the 
skid away roadside rather than people coming into the site driving all the way down the avenue of the oaks there's obviously parking on both sides of that now you want to take all of that traffic and keep it on the the, the iowa hope side of of wormslow um why is that necessary and why are people objecting to it <laughs> it's, it's, it's necessary because wormslow has gotten so popular mm-hmm. and that if you want to go in there like as a guest of me at nine o'clock mm-hmm. you can't get in there mm-hmm. and the people they come are so mesmerized they stand there and the kids are running all over the place it's a miracle mm-hmm. that some kid hasn't gotten run over mm-hmm. it's a miracle there hasn't yeah. been an accident down there because it, it is unbelievable and some days there'll be two thousand cars that come through there yeah it's the most popular site and most profitable site in the state of Georgia. Oh, and the Georgia historic sites this uh, portfolio. Yeah. Used to be, but I, we think we're still there. I, I'm pretty sure of that. So that's one thing that, that just the hazard right. at the gate. It's it's horrible. Right. Other thing, we did the study. We had Bartlett tree experts. We had the Warnell School of Forestry. We've got a whole study that's been done on the avenue. And we're talking, what is it? Is that a mile long of oaks on it's both sides? It's over a mile. It's over a mile, oaks on both sides. <coughs> the length 400 of the, oaks, planted in 1891. 400 oaks, there you go. They all said, number one, the compaction will kill the oaks. From the cars running up and down, yeah. Because well, well, they were pulling off the sides. And everybody was just pulling off, the cars were stacked up. But the worst thing is the dust. The dust coats the leaves, mm-hmm. and then the tree can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And so I've been preaching to DNR that you're killing the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, you're right. killing it, and you got to do something. Right. Well, they had a big shift at DNR, and Mark Williams became head of it, and they moved Becky Kelly out and brought Jeff Cohn in. Huh. Maybe Jeff Cowan, C-O-W-N. And... He and Jesse Petrie got together, and Re- local representative Georgia House. Yeah, Jesse Jesse's had done, got all the state legislatures together, all the ones from here, Ben Watson, mm-hmm. and they agreed that you know something had to be done, and um, so the first thing was to float the bond and get the parking lot, and so I figured. It'd be ten years before they did the visit us, so. but somehow and I, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. They got a grant to go ahead and build the visit us, so. mm-hmm. and I think it's confidential where they got the grant. But I bet it's something like the Woodruff Foundation, yeah, or yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, and um, and that's going to be up there where the where the the, the entrance gate is, not just inside the big mm-mm. archway. No, no it's going to be in the, what you're going to do is you're going to park in the parking lot and you go walk over to a visitor center. Mm-hmm. And then you can walk out and see the racetrack. There's going to be some stuff there for you to see. You can rent bicycles or you can get on a tram. Mm-hmm. And I know they're going to, they'll, they'll take you. This old road is called the Parkersburg Road. Mm-hmm. It started in Wormslow and goes straight into Alahope. Right. They'll come out on that Parkersburg Road. 
mm. and come over to the main avenue. They would get out and they take the pictures and do whatever they want. Right. And, yeah, because right now the visitor center's on the other end of the Oaks, yeah. on the Marsh side right. end. Of the and Oaks. that's going to stay. Yeah. And it's going to be a, a colonial museum. Okay. And the new one's going to be where the offices mm. all are. Right. And more of a modern time right. thing and not just strictly colonial. How much parking are they going to have in the new lot? A lot. A lot. They're going to have the buses, cars. I think, don't hold me to this, but right. I think it was like 160 cars. Okay. I think that's right. Okay. And, of course, I think the, the neighborhood pushback is to where hap- what happens to the overflow, which is, which is what you have been dealing with. What they're upset about is the traffic right. backing up for the school system. Right, because the school is half a mile down the road? It would be right across the road. Oh, where the parking lot's going to be. It's, okay. it, it, it's a legitimate concern, uh-huh. but the state took that into consideration, and they're doing that pull-off uh-huh. so you can pull off and then go in. Right. And um, the real concern is at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, well, it's not open. Right. And the other is in the afternoon. Right. Well. That could be that could be addressed, right? I mean, they can move the cop. Yeah, there's all kinds of things they can do to address that. The other thing that it's just somebody wanting to bitch is you're cutting down trees Mm -hmm. for this new parking lot and for the the access road. Yeah. Well, back in 1974, when we gave the property to the state, they had the pine beetle epidemic. They cut. Five million dollars worth of trees off of that property. Not one cent went into the site. Went back into the site, right? So that area was clear cut in 1974. Right. What's there now is just underbrush and growth. And, right. Yeah. And they're saving the big pines. They've got them flagged and everything. And um, I think Jesse just got blasted by a couple of people. One particular guy on Paxton Road just went ballistic. And, you didn't have a hearing. Well, you, it's none of their business. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's on that property, right? It's hmm? it's on it's on that property. It's yeah, not I'm a sorry. it's not not asking kind of kind of variance well, or any. And I know too many people have come to me and said, "I love walking at Wormslow. I love it." Well, now you're gonna be able to walk and enjoy it and, right. and not be dusted. You take a walk out there every day, right? Yeah. You walk the pines or the the oaks every day, or do you do different? I walk the yard, and, and at the, I go out early in the morning. I go out twice in the morning. I go down and get the, the Savannah Morning News. Good for you. I get it at, <laughs> at five o'clock. Five o'clock. Well, I hope we've got it there at five a.m. You do. Now. All right, good. The woman that does it is great. <laughs> I give her a nice check at Christmas good. and thank her right. for being so prompt with the paper. Right. And I get it. I get the Wall Street Journal. Uh-huh. Go back, read the Savannah paper, uh-huh. and take the dog out for a walk, and come back in, eat breakfast, and read the Wall Street Journal. Then take the dog back out for a walk. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful out there. In the beautiful morning. and quiet. And it's just serene. Sunrises are just awesome. Right, right. Before we wrap up here, that brings a, that brings a pretty good question to mind, and that's uh, so many estates uh, pieces of property that are owned by families uh, they do give them over for historic sites 
What do you see in terms of the trends there? How important is that for for these these families that have had these historical sites in their family for years to to try to do what they can to to make it put it more in the public realm? I guess is that is that a pretty important thing? Mm-hmm. It's extremely important. And um, the sad thing is, and this is just I, the Republicans don't like environmentalists basically but they want a low estate tax the democrats are environmentalists and they want to raise the estate tax so they're doing the opposite they already it it doesn't gel and so somehow they've got to if we want green space They've got to make it where a farm of any kind can be passed down. Now, they say it's tax-free, no state tax. If you sell it within five years or ten years, you don't owe the state tax. Then you owe the state tax. But it's the same thing. Wormslow is the exact same thing as... An African family, African American family living in a hog hammock on Sapelo. Mm-hmm. Camden County is taxing those poor black people out of their property. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not right. It's just not right. The same thing happened in Hilton Head. The African American families that lived on Hilton Head, mm-hmm. if a Hyatt Hotel came in and built next to them, that made their property worth yeah, so they, much. The Gullah Geechee, right, right. And it's just wrong. And People want to be allowed to own their family lands, mm. and we're taxing them out of it. Right. If it wasn't for Jimmy Carter, this whole coastal Georgia would not be here. Right. He saved it, but he's not recognized for it. Right. I don't think. So what's next for Wormslow? Well, assuming this all gets this all gets done, and, and well, uh, we, we've. This is all going to get done, and it, it, it will be done by probably the spring of 22. Okay, so in the next and year. And then we're supposed to, I'm supposed to raise a million and a half dollars to build the experiential learning center on the UGA site, which is going to be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I've raised a million three hundred fifty. Mm-hmm. So they've got enough to break ground. Yeah. And they're bringing down the provost, Toby Graham. And it's coming down in April, I think April the 19th. And you bring down a design group. So we'll plan on when we're going to break ground on that. Right. And then I would pretty well have done what I wanted to do. <laughs> and yeah. what's next is I'll probably kick the bucket. Then my son will live there. Thornton. Okay. Huh. And he definitely wants to live there. Right. Um, People say, well, do you put any strings on him? I say, no, I'm not putting any strings on him. They didn't put any on me. Right. And thank God they didn't because I could do what I've been doing. Right. And he doesn't realize it yet, what an awesome responsibility it is. Yeah. And um, But once he moves out there, he's going to find out. Right. Because you just can't help it. You just can't help it. You, you trust it with this place to take care of it and I'm blessed 
to be the one that lives out there. And I mean, I'm, I'm a lucky person, and I, I want to share it. We do as much as we can. Well, I always look forward to, to visiting. And uh, well, you come out there, come see us. Now, yeah. I'll give you two. Now I get the insiders to yeah. right? You have been listening to the Difference Makers Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Hear more Difference Makers interviews by searching Savannah Difference Makers on your favorite podcast app or by visiting savannahnow.com slash podcasts. We do one of these every other week. So there's plenty of, plenty of good stuff from community leaders in our archives. On behalf of producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.